You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 82 by Rudolf Steiner, uh, six lectures entitled Becoming Fully Human, The Significance of Anthroposophy in Contemporary Spiritual Life, translated by Jeff Martin. This is Lecture 2, entitled The Position of Anthroposophy Among the Sciences, given in The Hague on April 8, 1922. As anthroposophy becomes known within those areas of life in which people usually seek their religious, perhaps also their moral impulses, There are already very many people today who feel in a certain way pulled toward such a spiritual current as anthroposophy. It is already the case that the spirit of modern humanity, which yesterday I took the liberty of calling the, quote, spirit of science, close quote, has in many respects shaken in human souls the old traditional confessions. Thus, if many people confront the anthroposophic approach, With a certain sense of doubt, there are nevertheless many others today who have at least an inclination for such seeking. However, we can say that in a certain connection, things tend to go badly for anthroposophy when it wants to go into the fields of the various sciences. This is intended to be our particular theme within this course. It will be my responsibility here today to represent the general, more comprehensive principles and research results, while the other lecturers will deal with specific fields of science. But precisely at such an event, a number of antipathies that come from the perspective of science may assert themselves against anthroposophy. I mean this more theoretically than morally. And I can only assure you that those who are involved in anthroposophic research have a full understanding of this. It is a fact that today it is simply extremely difficult for a personality who is involved in the current scientific establishment to find a transition from today's usual scientific approach into anthroposophy. It is true that anthroposophy certainly has to correct some things that make up the current state of scientific research, and it is also true that it has to add a great deal to what is available to this current research especially when we get more into the organic and spiritual areas. However, anthroposophy does not actually come into any contradiction with conventional science. It accepts the legitimate results of science and proceeds with them as I have just characterized. The reverse, however, does not take place, not yet anyway. As I said, this is in a way understandable. Anthroposophy is rejected. Its results are seen not to meet the strictly scientific criteria authorized today. It is self-evident that in a short lecture I will not be able to go into everything that can, on the part of anthroposophy, serve to give a sound foundation for its results. But I would like to try in this lecture to characterize the position of anthroposophy within the fields of science, and to do so in such a way that you will be able to see from this characterization how anthroposophy is, above all, as serious about its foundations 
as any other scientific, conscientious, and exact methodology present today. For this purpose, however, it will be necessary for me to torment you today with arguments that are somewhat more remote. I will talk about things which might seem difficult, but which must, nevertheless, provide a certain basis for what I will present in an easier and perhaps more pleasing form in the next few days. Today it is still often thought that anthroposophy somehow takes its starting point from the nebulous condition of soul found in mysticism or occultism. One is completely mistaken if one ascribes to anthroposophy such a really very questionable foundation. And actually this view can only be held by those who know anthroposophy either superficially or even only from the side of its opponents. The basic orientation of anthroposophic consciousness takes its start not only in the sense in which I characterized it yesterday, but in an even more exact sense from what is actually the modern scientific field that is least contested today in its scientific character and scope. But neither the followers nor the opponents of anthroposophy usually consider correctly what I will characterize now by way of introduction. The position of mathematics in the sciences has already been discussed here, and world-famous, one would like to say, is the Kantian statement that in every science there is actually only so much true knowledge, so much true cognition, as there is mathematics. Now, I am not going to deal with any particular branch of mathematics or with the mathematics that is in general use in human culture or in science. I am rather talking about the state of mind adopted by someone who, if I may use the expression, mathematizes, who lives within the activity of mathematical construction. We are in a very special state of mind when we do mathematics. This state of mind can perhaps best be characterized by first speaking about the part of mathematics that is usually called geometry, the part of mathematics that has to do with the theory of space, with the treatment of space. In life we speak of three-dimensional space. We form the mental image of this space as constituted in such a way that its three dimensions are perpendicular, are at right angles to each other. What we have before the I, E-Y-E, of the soul as space is something which at first stands there quite independently of ourselves and of the rest of the world. The fact that space stands before our eyes independent of our being is evident to us from the fact that each of us determines ourselves as a being, as a separate individual, according to these determinations of space. You can certainly say that you are so and so far away from any point you have in view. Thus you incorporate yourself into space. You also integrate yourself into cosmic space by considering yourself as an earth being and by placing yourself at certain distances between planets and stars. In short, we all consider space at first as something objective, as something that has nothing to do with our own inner being. This even led to the fact that Kant spoke of our view of space as being a priori, a view that is, so to speak, innate to the human being 
from the beginning. We have no possibility of asking how we got this space. We simply have to accept it as something ready-made, as something we have to find our way into when we have come to the full consciousness of our existence on earth. But this is not the way it is in reality. As human beings, we form space out of our own being. Only we do not follow the formation of this space, or better said, the mental image of space, our view of space, with consciousness. For this construction takes place during a time in our lives when we cannot yet think about ourselves and about our own activities. To be able to do so would require that we could, with complete consciousness, enlighten ourselves about the essence of space in relation to our own being. For we would not have the view we have of space if we did not experience these three dimensions of space within our own existence on earth. We experience them. We experience the one dimension by moving from helplessness after our birth to walking upright as a human being, thus placing ourselves into this vertical dimension. We simply learn about the existence of this dimension from the way we ourselves form this one dimension. And we do not get to know just any dimension that simply happens to be perpendicular to the two other dimensions. We get to know this very special spatial dimension which is perpendicular to the surface of the earth. We begin to cognize it by the fact that we are not born upright. It is part of the laws that form our life on earth that we first have to bring ourselves into this vertical dimension. We also cognize a second dimension unconsciously. Now, I want to mention not so much what relates to the outer, but more to the inner human being. We individually form the ability, which will serve us throughout life, to take our orientation from left to right, from right to left. We only have to think of how we have the organization of speech in a certain part of our brain, the so-called Broca's area, and how the other side of our brain does not have such an organization. Today it is known and recognized by science that the formation of this speech organization in the left part of the human organization is connected with the initial active mobility appearing in the right hand. So we know that there is an orientation from right to left. This orientation from right to left, this stimulation of activity on the left by activity on the right, or vice versa, is something we experience within the laws that form us, just like our rising into uprightness. And it is in this symmetrical right and left orientation that as human beings we initially experience the second dimension of space. We never actually experience the third spatial dimension completely. We actually only visualize the so-called depth dimension in an estimating way. We are constantly accomplishing this, although fundamentally this accomplishment lies very much in the subconscious. If we cross our two eye axes at a point we grasp with both eyes, we expand the space. 
which otherwise would have only two dimensions for us, into the third. And with all judging and estimating of spatial depth, we actually unconsciously form the third dimension out of our own being, out of our own formative laws. So one could say in a certain way, we unfold the three spatial dimensions out of our own life. And the space we conceive and use in geometry, in Euclidean geometry at first, is nothing but an abstraction of what we gradually learn to cognize concretely out of our own organism as the real three dimensions, which are fully connected with our subjective human nature. We omit in this abstraction the very definite configuring of space, the very specific vertical, the specific horizontal, and the specific depth dimensions all become indifferent to each other. Such processes always takes place in abstraction. And then, when we have formed this external space of which we speak in geometry from an abstraction of our own inner three-dimensional experience, we actually then extend our consciousness over this external space. But now comes the significant thing. What we have first gained out of ourselves is now applicable to external nature. First, it is applicable to inorganic, lifeless formations, but also to the various positional relationships and movement relationships of organic formations. This is, in short, decisively determinative for our external world. Having made this transition, this metamorphosis of space, from a realm that actually lives only within us to what we usually call space, we now stand completely with our mental images of space, our experiences of space within the outer world. We can then determine and reflect back on ourselves according to spatial dimensions, spatial measurements, in relation to our own location and movement. We actually go right out of ourselves by forming, constructing space in this way. That which we have first experienced in ourselves, we carry out into the world outside our body. Then we place ourselves at a point of view from which we then look back at ourselves, filled with space. And, by first objectifying space in this way, we can now study the outer movement and position of things with the mental images that we have formed geometrically within space. Thus we really feel we are standing on a sure scientific foundation when we immerse ourselves in things by means of what we have formed out of ourselves. From these circumstances in regard to space, we can never have any doubt that we can live inside things at the same time by means of what has come out of us in this way. If we judge the distance or the changing distance of two bodies in the outside world according to spatial relations, we never doubt that we are determining something completely objective into which subjectivity cannot enter. But there is an important problem here. The problem is that something which we have experienced subjectively in ourselves appears as belonging objectively to the outer world. 
by transforming it out of ourselves, simply through a process of abstraction, space then becomes something which penetrates the outer world. If you consider impartially what is actually present here, you must say to yourself, when something like the subjective experience of space in its three dimensions and the subsequent objectification of it is carried out, I stand inside the objective outer world with what I experience in myself. Our subjective experiences, in that they are spatial experiences, are at the same time objective experiences. And in the end it is not difficult at all, but basically trivial and elementary, to realize this. For by moving ourselves through space, we carry out a subjective process, but it is at the same time an objective process because it takes place in the outer world. Whether we see a machine moving forward or a human being, subjectivity does not come into consideration. For the outer constellation of the world, what takes place, insofar as the human being lives spatially, is completely objective. However, if you now consider how you objectify space out of subjective experience by measuring space with your own self, so that you then move in an objective space, for by objectifying space you actually also carry this space within yourself, if you consider what is actually present there as a constitution of your soul unfolding in time, then you can say to yourself, if I could do the same with regard to other experiences as I can do with regard to mathematizing space, then I would, so to speak, be able to carry the mathematizing constitution of my soul into other areas of experience. Let us assume that we not only could come to this during the unconscious course of life for learning to stand upright and to walk, to orient left together with right, belong to the unconscious course of life, and the way we measure the depth dimension of space is half unconscious, but rather that we could consciously transform other subjective experiences in such a way that we could stand outside ourselves and look back on ourselves with these transformed experiences. What if we could form other experiences just as we create and form the spatial experience out of ourselves? When we look at a salt cube, we bring with us the shape of the cube from out of our own geometry. And we know that a complete identification has taken place of the shape of the objective salt cube with what we have formed in our spatial conception. What if we could do this, for example, with our sense perceptions, with our sensations of sense qualities, of colors, sounds, and so on, when we confront external objects, and in the same way project out into the world, as it were, what we first form within ourselves. We would thus place ourselves outside our body and even be able to look back on ourselves. With respect to mathematics, I have mentioned the geometrical image. I could also, however, cite other things that we carry out but do not pay attention to. Neither the mathematicians nor the philosophers have considered this peculiar relationship I have now put before you.
With reference to sense perceptions, however, science has come into true confusion. People think, in many cases physiologists have even joined the epistemologists and philosophers in the 19th century in this, that when we see red, for example, some kind of external vibration is transmitted to our organ of sight, then to the brain. Then the actual red experience is triggered, or the tone, C-sharp, is triggered in the same way by external vibrations. Here they are in confusion, because what lives in us, within the boundary of our body, can no longer be distinguished from what is outside. Here it is said as a fact that all sense qualities, colors, tones, and warmth qualities are actually only subjective, that the outer objective process is something completely different. If, now, we could also create from out of ourselves what appears in us as the sensations of sense impressions and then transfer them outside of us in order to find them again in and on things, just as we construct the three spatial dimensions out of ourselves, then in the same way we would find again what we first found in ourselves, in and on things. And yes, then looking back at ourselves, we would find them again, just as we find what we experience as space within us in the outside world, and then looking back at ourselves, we find ourselves belonging to this space. Thus, we would have around us, as we have the world of space around us, a world of colors and tones flowing into each other. We would speak of an objectified, colored, sounding world, a flooding, colored, sounding world, just as we speak of the space around us. But we can certainly achieve this. We can get to know this world as the world of our own construction, one which, otherwise, seems to exist for us only as a world of outer effects. Just as we unconsciously, simply out of our human nature, form the shape of space in order to find it again in the world by first having metamorphosed it, so too can we, through certain exercises that must now be carried out consciously, come to find, out of ourselves, all the qualities contained in the world and then find them again in looking back at ourselves. What I am describing to you here is an ascent to what is called imaginative cognition. We all have a spatial world around us today, that is, everyone who is not abnormal mathematically or not mathematically disposed. Through exercises, we can all in the same way experience what lives in us and in the world at the same time. We can add to the ordinary objective view of things, in which mathematics is a sure guide. The imaginative view. This is only a technical term and does not mean imagination in the ordinary sense. I already said yesterday that I would have to explain a special method of practice and research. I will then describe to you what we have to do in order to arrive at such an imaginative contemplation, where we have, as it were, an overall view of the qualities of the world. We achieve this in just in the same way as we come to experience space, which, however, at first 
does not contain any special reality that interests us in a higher sense. Thus, when we can confront the world in this imaginative way, we are already within supersensible vision. We are at the first stage of supersensible vision. Normal sense perception, seeing with our sense of sight, for example, where we simply stare at things and only take in their forms externally, can be distinguished from seeing mathematically geometrical structures in things, where we see triangles and squares within them. And the vision that occurs in imagination is really an interweaving with the inner essence of things, just as mathematical contemplation is an interweaving with those world relations that are absolutely accessible to mathematics. Whoever approaches mathematics with the right attitude will come to see in the behavior of one who is engaged in mathematics a model for everything that is to be achieved for a higher, a supersensible contemplation. For mathematics is simply the first stage of supersensible perception. What we see as the mathematical structures of space are supersensible perceptions. We only do not acknowledge this because we have gotten used to it and merely accept it. But one who knows the actual nature of this mathematizing knows that what we find given with the structure of space, which is at first for most people a science not particularly interesting for our eternal human nature, completely bears the character of all that one can demand from clairvoyance in the true sense of the word. This is the anthroposophic sense of clairvoyance, without nebulous mysticism or confused occultism, but simply with the aim of ascending to supersensible worlds in an exact and scientific way. In the activity of mathematizing, everyone can study what clairvoyance is in a higher realm of experience. And you might be surprised to learn that on the whole it is precisely mathematicians, the ones who should know the process that takes place when they are mathematizing, who do not actually bring a deeper understanding toward what necessarily appears, if I may use this expression, as a higher qualitative mathematizing in clairvoyant research. For imaginative cognition, the first stage of this research attained through exercises, is nothing other than an insight into still other areas of existence than mathematizing usually allows for. But many things change with respect to human observation if we look at the whole inner nature of mathematics with true self-cognition. There we come, for example, to the following. We look back on how we came to the structure of space in early childhood through walking and standing upright, by orienting left and right, by determining the depth dimension. By connecting with all this, we get to know from inner experience what is otherwise only an abstractly viewed geometrical space. We also learn to recognize the fateful consequences if one cannot look back to this living emergence of space in the mental picturing and contemplation of space from out of the human being. For there are consequences if we simply accept space already in a metamorphosed form, independent of the human being. 
In more recent times, science has come to regard space in its three dimensions in such a way that they have gone over purely mathematically to a fourth and to further dimensions. These multi-dimensional spaces and the geometries that refer to them have today become generally known in scientific circles. However, for someone who has gotten to know the living formation of space, it is extremely interesting to follow this pursuit of the mathematical calculations and function operations carried out in respect to three-dimensional space. By extending certain things, one then gets the fourth dimension, which is no longer visible, and so on. These things are mathematically, logically, not only interesting, but also completely correct. However, for someone who knows how our vision of space comes about, just as I have described it, there is something very special here. For example, if I may use this comparison, we can have a pendulum and see the pendulum swing out and up. In looking purely externally at the moment of a pendulum's swing, you could think that this pendulum might swing on and on, outward and upward, but it does not. When it has reached a certain point, it swings back again in the opposite direction. If we know the force relations that live in the pendulum, then we know that the pendulum oscillates, that it cannot simply go on because of the force relations lying within it. In the same way, you can learn to cognize such force relations in your own soul condition in relation to space. Then the matter becomes different. Then you actually, logically, mathematically, participate in what forms the transition from the calculations in three-dimensional to four-dimensional space. Only, you then notice, it does not proceed further. It does not proceed into an indefinite fourth but you must turn back at a certain point, and the fourth dimension becomes simply the third dimension with a negative sign. You come back again through the third dimension. This is the mistake that is made in the multidimensional geometries. There we simply continue to run abstractly from the second into the third, from the third into the fourth dimension, and so on. But what is happening here is, if I may thus now express myself comparatively, not simply continuous, but oscillating. Our view of space must again return into itself. In truth, we destroy the third dimension by taking it negatively. The fourth dimension is the negative third, which annihilates the third and actually makes space two-dimensional. And likewise, we can find a process for the fifth and sixth dimensions, which is quite real in itself, although one that is logically, mathematically, algebraically, simply continuous. If we are to form mental images according to the reality of the space that is simply present before us, we must, with the fourth, fifth, sixth dimension, come back again. And with the sixth dimension, we have simply cancelled space altogether. We have arrived at the point. What is actually present now in our current culture? Our age has become abstract with respect to thinking. 
One simply continues the course that one has taken by thinking from planometrics to stereometry, while in reality the fourth dimension leads back again into space. But by returning now, we are not at all in the same situation in which we were when we emerged into a vision of the third dimension. By returning, we are spirit-laden. If we find the possibility to think the fourth dimension in such a way that we return with it again by being the negative third back into space, then this space becomes spirit-filled, while three-dimensional space is matter-filled. And we find space filled with higher and higher spirit forms if we go along from the negative third and second and first dimension up to the point, where we have no more spatial extension, but stand completely in the extensionless, purely within the spiritual. What I am describing to you is not formal mathematics. It is the reality of spiritual perception. It shows how a spiritual path unfolds in reality. This is in contrast to that path which has become so accustomed only to material appearances. This external path naturally no longer works materially in the soul's constitution, but it works within mathematics by continuing on in abstractions to enter an imperceptible world in which it can at most calculate or form imaginary mathematical structures. Here you see that living completely into the mathematical leads you to receive into yourself the inner nature of the spiritual in accordance with the world through mathematics. A true understanding of the mathematical state of the soul leads us directly into the concept of clairvoyant experience and then we ascend to imagination. In order to really comprehend the spiritual in the way it will be described later, it cannot be comprehended in the usual way. It must be described the way I have when we pass from the third to the fourth dimension and so on up to the dimensionless realm to the point. This leads us spiritually to the highest we can reach, not as an empty point, but as a fulfilled point. It made a significant impression on me when I was once regarded strangely by an elderly writer. He had written a lot about spiritual things when he saw me for the first time and he asked, quote, How did you first become aware of this difference between seeing the sense world and seeing the supersensible world? Close quote. Then I said, because I prefer to express myself with radical honesty in such things, quote, The moment I got to know the inner sense of the so-called newer or synthetic geometry, Thus, when you pass from analytical to synthetic geometry, it allows you not only to approach its constructions externally, but also to grasp their mutual relations. This synthetic geometry starts from these constructions themselves and not from external coordinates. For if we only construct spatial coordinates, we have not grasped these structures, but only the endpoints of the coordinates and then we connect these ends and get the lines. But we can't actually get to these structures with analytical geometry, while with synthetic geometry we live within the constructions. With this we receive the stimulus to study the soul constitution,
which, when further developed, leads to a penetration into the supersensible world. With this I have characterized the way in which anthroposophy can definitely count on starting from mathematics in the same strict way as today's natural science starts from it, only from a different point of view. Natural science uses a ready-made, formalized mathematics. Anyone who wants to understand the clairvoyant process must seek it out where it is most primitively present, in the form of mathematics. If you can then carry it up into higher realms, you develop something that relates to the elementary, primitive basis of mathematics, in the same way as the later mathematical realms relate to their first axioms. The first axioms of clairvoyance are alive. And if we succeed in training mathematically through exercises, we will not only see spatial relations in our environment, but we'll get to know spiritual beings who reveal themselves before us with spiritual inwardness, just as we can know the inner cube nature of rock salt. We get to know spiritual beings when we carry in this way what we form in mathematics up into higher realms. This is what I wanted to say first about the foundation of what must be recognized within anthroposophy as clairvoyant research. We will then see how this clairvoyant research can be applied to the individual fields of knowledge, both to the fields of natural science and to the fields of medicine, historical science, and so on. And we will see how the sciences are not challenged, but enriched by introducing into their fields the knowledge that can be cognized in supersensible vision, supersensible cognition. However, for a correct understanding of what is actually meant here, it can help to consider the course of human development over a certain period of history in order to see how it led to the formation of our present scientific thinking. Let us consider this scientific thinking which recognizes the mere formalism of mathematics and yet has learned inner certainty and exactness of research from mathematics. It actually regards the laws of nature as justified only if they are capable of such a mathematical formulation. At least this is a kind of ideal of today's scientific inquiry, but it was not always so. That which we recognize today as the scientific spirit has only developed over the long course of human evolution. And I would like to present to you today only three stages of this developing human spirit, of which we are in the third today. And I will also touch on some of the things that can be brought forward to substantiate what I want to tell you. If we go back in the development of humanity we do not always find the same state of soul that people now have. Today we have a soul constitution that leads in its highest manifestation to the formation of the scientific spirit. If we go back to the ancient Orient, we do not even need to go back to the most ancient Indian times, we find a principle of cognition that has been preserved there. At that time the path to cognition was called by an entirely different name. In those older times, even the history of language can substantiate this, human beings, looking back on themselves, 
did not feel as we do today. Our self-consciousness is firmly taken hold of by thinking on the one hand and the observation of what is mechanistic on the other hand. A person from the Orient was not able to feel like this. As I said, even the history of language can testify to this. The people of the Orient felt themselves, first of all, as breathing beings. The human being was a breather. And the process of breathing was that to which they preferably looked for self-cognition, for self-perception. They even associated immortality with the breathing process. A kind of exhalation of the soul was its entrance into death. The human being was a breather. Why did they feel in this ancient state of soul that the human being was a breathing being? Because in the breathing process, which did not take place in the unconscious as it does today, life was really felt in inhalation and exhalation. They felt the vibrations, the rhythms of life in breathing. Breathing was felt then the way we feel hunger and thirst today. But this breathing process was a continuous feeling in the waking state. And when they looked with their eyes, then they knew, now the breathing process goes up into my head, up to my eyes. They felt the act of looking in such a way that the breathing movement flowed through it. It was likewise with a movement of the will. The stretching out of the hand was felt as if it were something that was connected to movements of the breath. A spreading of the breath into the whole body was felt as an inner life process. Thus perception was then felt to be animated by the breath over against our more theoretical perception today of the outer world through the senses. They also felt their impulses of will to be animated by the breath. They felt themselves to be breathing beings. Because of this, they could have said their breath was modified in such and such a way by seeing through their eyes, by hearing through their ears, by perceiving effects of heat. They thus experienced everywhere, through sensory perceptions, a differentiated, modified, metamorphosed, refined breathing process. And because of this, for them the path of cognition also involved a regular training of the breathing process. This was, for those older epochs of human development, what our university study is for us today. But we study in a different way. In those days, when they wanted to gain religious satisfaction, when they wanted to gain knowledge, they studied by training and transforming their breathing process. In other words, they developed what was later called yoga breathing, yoga exercises. And what was thus trained? If you follow what was achieved by practicing yoga breathing in order to reach higher levels of cognition, you will find something strange. Those who had thus become scholars through yoga exercises, such an expression is usually not applied to these older conditions, but one can perhaps speak thus, and also the study lasted about as long as our university study lasts. Those who had become scholars in this way had taken hold of something in their soul constitution that in later times, for example in the Greek and Roman times, was experienced as the world of ideas. 
Later, for the Greeks, this world of ideas simply arose there as if by itself. Thus, for the Greeks, the human soul constitution no longer needed yoga. That is the interesting thing. What one has to strive for through all kinds of exercises during an earlier epoch is there by itself in the development of later epochs. Later it no longer means what it used to mean. When Socrates, when Plato were active, the philosophy of a Plato, of a Socrates, no longer meant the same thing as it would have meant for the old yoga student or yoga master who had come to the Socratic or Platonic truths. The study of yoga was not exactly organized in the same way by such yoga breathing, but he was in a similar condition of soul as were Plato, Aristotle, or Scotus Origina. Thus we see that what was practiced as a path of cognition in the most ancient times through regulated exercises of the breath resulted in a certain vivid conceptual world. You actually get a correct idea of what lived in later times in Heraclitus, in Parmenides, in Anaxagoras, if you say to yourself, this is what was given to people as a matter of course in that age, and which was achieved in still older times through yoga. It was always through exercises that one strove for the higher knowledge of an age. Thus the perception of the world was experienced in later epochs in such a way that one now no longer perceived the breath when reflecting upon oneself, but one perceived as the Greek perceived. I've explained more about this in my book titled The Riddles of Philosophy, Collected Works, Volume 18. At that time it was still the case that people did not form separate thoughts about the world. Rather, their ideas formed a unity with their sense experiences. They saw their thoughts outside in the world, as we today see red or blue outside or hear C-sharp or B-flat. Thoughts were part of the outside world. Only those who know this understand the Greek world. Thus they then perceived only spirit penetrated by sense perceptions or sense perceptions penetrated by spirit and no longer the differentiation of the breathing process. However, Humanity again strove to reach a higher level of cognition in all those fields where they had already striven for higher cognition. And this new level was again reached by exercises. Today we have rather vague ideas about the times of the early Middle Ages, about the spiritual life of the early Middle Ages. But such abstract learning as we practice today was not what medieval students did. They also had to do exercises. The usual learning process was then also connected with doing exercises. It was an inner practice they went through, but not in such a robust way as the practice of yoga breathing. It was a more inward practice, but still a practice. A legacy, little understood today, has been preserved in what in the Middle Ages was called the seven liberal arts. At that time, anyone who sought a higher cognition had to undergo a training in the following subjects. Grammar, which meant the practical handling of language. Rhetoric, which not only meant the proper use, but also the beautiful handling of language. Dialectic, the manipulation of language 
from out of the inner power of thinking. And when they had gone through these three in inner practice, as exercises, then came arithmetic, not our abstract arithmetic, but that arithmetic which lived within things, which led to a clear consciousness of the fact that we form everything inwardly. And then they learned inwardly practiced geometry, a geometry that was fully interwoven within them, becoming a practical capacity. Then the whole thing led into what was called astronomy. Here they integrated their being into the cosmos. They learned to cognize how their head related to the cosmos, how their lungs and their heart were a result of the cosmos. They did not have an astronomy separated from the human being, but an astronomy within which the human being stood fully. And then in the seventh stage, which was called music, they got to know the weaving and working of divine being, which weaves and wells through the world. This was not the music of today, but a higher, living development of what was active more in thought form in astronomy. And so in these later times, students exercised an inner practice. What used to be breathing exercises was now more an inner practice of the soul. And what did this all come to? Gradually, in the course of the history of human civilization, we came to have thoughts separated from sense perceptions. This had to be achieved first. The Greeks still saw thoughts in the world, as one sees colors and sounds. We grasp a thought as something produced by us, as something that is not contained in things. What we feel in this way, what our soul's condition is today, this is a result of practicing grammar, rhetoric, and so on, up to music, in earlier times. Thereby thought became detached from things. One learned to move freely in thought. This finally has brought about what is now natural to us what we have today without having to do exercises. It is what we find today in our schools and is offered in the individual sciences, as described yesterday. In earlier ages, one had to advance through exercises, in more ancient times through yoga-breathing exercises, and later through the exercises that ran from grammar to music. Thus, from the yoga-breathing exercises, one got, as a matter of course, the Greco-Latin worldview, and then today's scientific point of view arose from the exercises that went from grammar to music. Now, again, this can be continued. Indeed, the best and surest way is to start from mathematics. It is both true and astonishing, as it was to that writer when I said, quote, I have brought to consciousness the clairvoyant process mainly through synthetic geometry. It is not true, of course, that one who has studied synthetic geometry is a clairvoyant, but the process can be illustrated in this way. As surprising as it was to that writer not to be told, not to hear something that is said by fortune-tellers, it is nevertheless the case that anthroposophy wants precisely to carry further into the realms of the supersensible what is available as a sure foundation for science, on which science stands firmly today, and from which anthroposophy has itself developed, namely mathematics. 
We must therefore internalize the process still further. And a still more internalized process is that which I have described as the path to clairvoyant research in my book's title, An Outline of Esoteric Science, Collected Works, Volume 13, and Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, Collected Works, Volume 10. But such a consideration of history as I have just mentioned can show you that anyone who today stands fully consciously within anthroposophy draws this consciousness from standing within the course of humanity's evolution. We do not assert out of some subjective preference or sympathy. Today we have to undertake exercises in order to continue the course that has brought humanity up to its present standpoint. But we must know how this course has been up to now and how it must continue. This historical consciousness, this consciousness of being inside the whole process of humankind, this is what is added to the insight that comes to us when we inwardly, not outwardly, take the present scientific spirit into our souls. Thus, on the one hand, it may be said that anthroposophy knows what its position is today among the sciences. It knows this in an absolute sense. It knows the peculiarity of today's science. And it rejects all dilettantism, all amateurism, and builds on from what is true science. On the other hand, it knows the historical necessities. It knows how the path of humanity must continue from what has been achieved at present if we do not want to stand still, just as all our ancestors, where they had a share in the development of civilization, wanted to move forward. We must also move forward. But we must know which steps have to be taken from the present standpoint of the scientific spirit. In the next few days, I will have to describe in detail what this means. Then perhaps it will be easier to understand what I had to give as a foundation today. Perhaps, however, it has been possible to show that anthroposophy already knows from a scientific, scientifically-minded attitude what it actually wants in relation to the present and the whole development of humankind, and also in relation to the individual sciences. Anthroposophy will set to work because it knows how it has to work. Perhaps its path will be a long one. But if one sees how deep the longings in the subconscious depths of human souls actually are for those heights which anthroposophy would like to climb, then it seems necessary for the salvation of humanity that the path which anthroposophy has to go should not be at all too slow. However, it will perhaps be less significant for anthroposophy than for human progress, whether the course will be slow or fast. We are talking about the fact that in many fields today we are in accelerating times. May that which humanity wants to achieve in the cognition of the supersensible be achieved as quickly as is necessary for the salvation of humanity. The End of Lecture 2